0: I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special three-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to a leading authority on migraine and headaches, Professor Peter Goadsby, a headache neurologist at King's College London and Director of the National Institute for Health Research. Peter, thanks so much for, for joining us today. I know that this is one of those topics that well, I think you know all of us doctors see quite a lot of, particularly GPs. Um, you know, it's one of the kind of main things that people come complaining about is headaches, um, and I think it's about lots of misunderstanding. Is this right? So, do you run a? Is it a headache clinic? Is that right?
1: Yes, exactly. I'm a neurologist, and the, the thing that really got me intrigued in neurology, brain conditions, basically, was um, was headache disorders. And over the years, I focused down on that, and now I run a um, a specialist headache clinic, and at, uh, at Kings. So yes, I focus on headache disorders.
0: So we've had we've had quite a lot of questions on this. It's obviously it's, as I say it's a, it's a topic that I think affects well probably everybody uh, has had you know some kind of headache at some point in, in their life. Um, and for well, some-,
1: some more than others. I mean, one of the remarkable things the World Health Organization and the Burden of Diseases Study, which looks at the burden of all diseases in the world, would tell you that. Migraine is the second commonest cause of medical disability uh, on the planet, and the commonest cause for the under 50s. Second only um, in the over 50s to low back pain. So it's, it, the thing is, as you probably know, from you would have seen from general practice, is that common things that are really troublesome don't excite anyone. They don't. People don't get stuck into it a little bit. So they just, they continue to be common and very troublesome.
0: So so the first question, I suppose, is really kind of really at the heart of this. A very sort of general question is, how do I know if it's a tension headache or a migraine? And I suppose at the heart of that really is, you know, what what is the difference between a headache and a migraine? So
1: the way we think about headaches, I'll, I'll just stand back from it for one second and come back to what you asked. But we think about headache as being in broadly, there are two big causes. There are things that cause pain in the head that's secondary. So if uh, you've got a brain tumour or you've got meningitis, an infection, or if someone comes and takes a hammer and belts you over the head, then you've got pain in the head secondary to it being caused by the hammer or whatever. And then there are what are called primary headache disorders, where headache itself is the problem. And the two you mentioned, tension-type headache and migraine, are the two big examples of primary headaches, where they're The headache is a manifestation of the disorder, not of something else happening. The big distinction between migraine and tension-type headache is that migraine is a syndrome with headache and other symptoms, largely of sensation dysfunction, which we'll come back to in a sec. And tension-type headache is headache, stop, full stop, nothing else, just headache. Migraine has headache plus sensitivity to light. Sensitivity to sound, to smells, sometimes to just touching the head. It's associated with uh, trouble with thinking, altered sleep patterns. It's associated, interestingly, sometimes with yawning just before the attacks. It can change mood just before the attacks. And because of the broad effects on the brain, it's very disabling because it stops people doing what they want to do in in very many ways. If you contrast that with tension-type headache, people with tension-type headache aren't sensitive to light they aren't sensitive to sound they aren't sensitive to smells they don't have any trouble thinking it doesn't stop them doing anything and if they could go out the back and dig a dig up a road it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference uh, to to their headaches tension type headache is generally mild has no other features and generally doesn't stop you doing anything in fact doing something is usually a good distraction whereas migraine has broad symptoms and fundamentally stops you doing things
0: just going back to headache then just because in fact i don't even rem- remember really sort of dealing with this at medical school at all In fact, i was just trying to when you were talking i was just trying to remember to think i did a couple of weeks in neurology and i don't apart from i think we maybe have not even one lecture i don't think on headache um and yet as you say it's so common so can you just run through the different are there different types then of headache so we mentioned tension headaches what other sort of what other types are there
1: yeah so of primary headache disorders where you, do, you don't you don't have the headache because you've got an infection or, some, or or trauma of these primary ones like tension type headache, which is what I'll call featureless. So no light and sound sensitivity, nothing of that description. Um, there's migraine. Uh, the third category in what's called the International Classification of Headache Disorders, first promulgated in 1988, most recent revision is the third in 2018. It's a 211 page romping good bedtime read. <laughs> you want to read about the classification of headache, which listeners could find on the International Headache Society's website if they want to do that. As I said, you've got tension type headache, we have got migraine. There's a group of conditions called trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. And the most common is a condition called cluster headache. And then there's an, then the fourth other type of headache, we rather uncreatively called other. And it's a range of uh, interesting things like Headache when you go to sleep, called hypnic headache, or headache um, when you cough or valsalva. That's called cough headache. Unsurprisingly, perhaps. Uh, and then there's a there's headache associated with sexual activity, which you won't surprise be surprised to know is called sex headache. So most of most of it's what it says uh, on the jar. Might be worth coming back to cluster headache um, to contrast it. Migraines largely is three females for every male and cluster is three males for every female. Um, Migraine attacks go for hours. Cluster attacks tend to go for maybe one hour. Um, In migraine, 90% of patients don't want to move about. If they move about, shake their head about, their pain gets worse. Whereas in cluster, 90% of people want to get up, move about, pace about and literally bang their head against a, a wall. Cluster headache occurs in clusters, so maybe once or twice a year for six to eight weeks, they'll get an attack one, two, three, four times a day at particular times. And then in between times, boom, it stops, goes away. Nothing can kick it off. Whereas migraine, the attacks are longer. Um, they, For people who are bothered, they tend to happen more or less regularly throughout the year with the various changes. So this inter- the contrast is quite interesting.
0: So the the next question we've got, again, I think it kind of touches on all the misunderstandings that are about migraines and headaches. Um, And this one relates to kind of, I suppose, people's anxiety around when they have migraines. So are migraines dangerous? With the numbness down my left arm and terrible pain, I sometimes fear I'm having a stroke. And I think this is one of the things that often really compounds people's anxiety around it is that it's often the 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 symptoms are kind of very very similar to the ones that we we're told to worry about and they indicate having a stroke
1: yes it's true um so about 20 to 30 percent of migraine patients will have these symptoms the pins and needles or typically visual disturbance a jagged bright uh, line that's in the periphery of the vision and then sort of moves across and they're all called migraine aura. Now the simple answer to the questioner is no, it's not dangerous. Let's, let's just say that if danger means you'll have a stroke or die, And the answer to that's no, if danger means you lose a day of your life, you won't get it back. So it's, it's an interesting problem in that regard. You don't get a, at the end of your life, you don't get a special discount because you're a migraineur and get to spend another 10 years with your, um, you know, with your, uh, with your pension. Whatever days you lose, you lose. The aura itself, as you say, has some similarities to stroke. The big difference is the way, uh, is very often the way it behaves. So, for example, if you've got pins and needles, they generally start in one part of the, the limb, the arm or the leg, and they move up the arm or the leg. And they take time to do that, whereas a stroke will come on bang. Symptoms, bang, bang. And maybe 2% of aura will go bang. But most aura will go up the arm. It'll take minutes. And nothing else behaves like that in neurology, that thing that starts in the fingers and moves up the arm and, you know, in the time that we have and takes the whole of our podcast virtually to get up to the elbow. That that progress of the symptoms, that slow march, very typical of aura. It's a main um, history-taking thing that will get you to be able to, um, you know, to distinguish it from stroke. And I understand people. It's, it's perfectly sensible to be worried about it. And in a rare form of aura, where there's actually weakness that happens, and they can't move their arms properly or they get clumsiness, it's even more concerning. You know, once diagnosed properly, um, at least uh, patients have the 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 good knowledge that they're not uh, going to have a stroke. Now they can try and give themselves a stroke um, by smoking uh, to increase the risk of stroke. Uh, they can try and give themselves a stroke by not, you know, not having blood pressure control, not watching their weight, cholesterol, um, and so forth. But at the end of the day, a person with mig- uh, the, the person with uh, migraine having an aura, is not going to have a stroke.
0: Um- Okay, so the next question then is, do certain foods really trigger migraines? I've given up chocolate, bacon, aged cheese, smoked fish, on the advice of a nutritionist, and I do feel a lot better, but I really miss them Well, I have to stay off them for life. I suppose that's a several questions in one really, yeah. about the kind of like natural, like long course of um, natural history as it were of yeah. migraines, but also around triggers. I wonder then if, if we might be able to take that first, Can you talk a bit about the kind of, uh, you know, the the main migraine triggers?
1: Yeah, that's something we've been really interested in the last uh, decade. You mentioned I'm the director of the King's uh, Clinical Research Facility, the NIHR's uh, research facility. And one of the things we've been interested in is trying to understand the biology of migraine, because if you understand what's turning it on and turning it off, you get a sporting chance of understanding how to develop new medicines. It's a very, it's sort of, obvious to say that. So when we've been thinking about triggers, some are clear cut. Alcohol, for example. Some hours later, you get a headache. Okay, well, you know what the trigger is. You have two choices. Don't take alcohol or take alcohol. And like grown people make decisions. For some of the triggers, what's emerging is that it's not so clear they're triggers. So before the actual pain starts, most migraine patients, certainly north of uh, four out of five, will have a phase called the premonitory phase. And during that phase, they might feel, uh, they might get a bit of neck discomfort. They might start yawning, remarkable symptom. They'll feel sleepy. They might feel tired, meaning meaning fatigued. They might have trouble concentrating. They get this kind of um, muzziness, a, a, a brain fog. They might have some mood change, get a bit irritable. They also might feel like eating particular things, sweet or savoury, and they might pass more urine or feel they need to drink more. And those symptoms are happening, and they're part of the brain changes that are occurring as the attack is building up. The attack has already actually started. And when we started to study this, it turns out also that some people will get, in that phase, they'll get sensitivity to light, okay? So imagine for a moment that eight hours or six hours before you get your bad migraine, you, f- you notice the light a little bit more because you're sensitive to it. And that happens a hundred times. And you'll start to think that, well, maybe light is turning my headache on because that's what happens. And people make the right association for the wrong causal reason. If the brain light sensitivity is already started as part of the migraine, the light's not triggering the migraine at all what you're noticing is the premonitory phase of the migraine. Interestingly enough, if you start, to, you start to look into that as an example, some of the foods, sweet things, for example. If you get this craving to have something, chocolate bar, and you get that six hours or four hours before your attack, and then the headache comes, you may not, you know, you start to think, oh, well, chocolate bars will give me migraine. Cheese will give me migraine. Uh, or bacon or whatever, the, some of the things that I mentioned, some of them have actually good reasons for that, but chocolate's a good example. It's entirely plausible that some of the things that have been called triggers aren't triggers at all. What they are is the, is the disorder actually starting already, and the patient's making the right... They're noticing the right thing, they just don't have the extra sort of key to understand that the attack uh, has already started.
0: So, you so can, just to cover see see that they're having, so they're having, like, for example, a craving for chocolate. Yes. and And because the, that's part of the build-up of the migraine... Yes. ...they then have the migraine and, and link the having chocolate to having the migraine, whereas actually yes. the migraine is already coming, and it's almost like yes. a is craving the chocolate.
1: And, and it's not speculation. We've been doing work, in our brain imaging work, um, using MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, where you can look at the behaviour of the brain... Um, with a with a brain scanner, and you can actually trigger an attack. Nitroglycerin, which is used in cardiac problems, will, will also, and about eighty percent of people will turn an attack on. So you can get people who happily volunteer. And thanks, if anyone's listening, who has, because it's it's a lot to do, to have their attack triggered, and then you image the brain what before the headache starts, but while they're in that premonitory phase, and you can see differences in the brain in that premonitory phase that make a lot of sense. So there's an area deep in the brain, uh, I might remember, called the hypothalamus. Now it's, yeah, okay, it's a fancy term. But when you talk about that area of the brain, what it's involved in controlling is fluid balance, satiety for eating. That means feeling full, yeah. Feeling full, yeah. So areas, connections to mood areas and Part of its structure has the what's called circadian uh, cells that, that are involved in sleep and wake. So if I just said to you, fluid, eating, mood, sleep, and I tell you that there's an area in the brain that's, that's changing before you get the pain, then you might start to think, it's not, the symptoms people are reporting are not vague or crazy. They're actually exactly what you'd predict If this area of the brain was involved in the very earliest phase of the migraine attack so it's a you know it's an illustration of being able to not just provide not just say something's happening but provide some beginning understanding of what part of the brain might be doing it that's the first step of course to developing therapies
0: sure so so are there are there any triggers then or is that that just a bit of a myth some of it's
1: i think some of it's a myth i I think alcohol is a clear trigger Chemicals, I think, are a clear trigger. Um, foods that have nitrates, because nitroglycerin, nitric oxide, is a chemical in the brain, a chemical that's, uh, that's generated by various, uh, by nerve cells and other places in the brain, uh, and other places outside the brain, can trigger migraines. So aged cheeses might have nitrates. So I can kind of, you can understand that. Um, cured meats might have nitrates, I can understand that. And there are chemicals that will do it, that's fine. The problem is you've got the interaction between real triggers, if I'll say them that way, alcohol is the absolute classic for that, versus ones that are probably not as clear. And I certainly put chocolate into the much uh, not as clear at all. And most ordinary cheeses, the sort of thing you get on a pizza, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference from a, um, from a chemical perspective. So there's there's no simple answer to this as in they're all are, they all aren't. The important thing is, you know, you apply the the sort of scientific process and pull apart which things people should avoid and which things is just there's no torturing somebody if you don't need to.
0: If you have identified a particular, trigger, say, for example, alcohol, and that it's quite clear that that is a genuine trigger. Is there any evidence that shows that that trigger becomes less effective so that people can start to maybe drink again years down the line? Or is that pretty much going to be your trigger for the rest of your life?
1: Yeah, to some extent, it is a trigger for the largest part of your migraine life. The, the natural history of migraine for about 6% will develop before puberty. So about 6% of children have migraine. And then it picks up when women start to menstruate, when girls start to menstruate. And the peak prevalence in, in the community is about the age of 40, when there's about three females for every male. And with menopause, the number plummets, but doesn't go back to nothing. So the, it, the ratio comes back to nearly one to one and the numbers with migraine go off as people get older. So in the, you know, by the time patients get to their, say, 60s, it's usually less of a problem. But you can see already, I just, what I just described was life. <laughs> you, know, you, you grow up, you have uh, puberty, you go to university, you get a job, um, you might have some children, you might prepare for you know, getting ready for even um, retirement. You know, it seems cruel to me that here's a problem that basically affects the vast majority of the community, sort of the people who are doing everything, holding the place up. So, unfortunately, it does. Uh, it, it's something that does continue to be a problem. What's an interesting contrast is that if you take someone with cluster headache when they're out of their bout, when they're not having attacks... They can virtually go swimming in a vat of Johnny Walker if they wanted to, so they can take as much alcohol as they choose to, and we shouldn't suggest that they take any more than they should. Um, But the alcohol doesn't trigger them at all, whereas they go into a bout and boom, within 30 minutes of taking a drink, they'll have an attack. In contrast, people with migraine have more or less the same susceptibility for the largest part of their life.
0: Professor Gosby, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. But come back next week for part two. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about migraine, you can look at the Migraine Trust website. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And whilst you're there, please leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk.